Welcome to the All Things Agile podcast, your destination for tips and interviews with the leaders in the world of Agile. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast in iTunes, and please check out our sponsor, TeamAccelerator.com. And now, here's your host, Ronnie Andrews, Jr. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the All Things Agile podcast, Episode 5, Remixed. I'm very excited to present to you a wonderful interview with Lean Software Legends, Mary and Tom Poppendike. But before we begin, a quick reminder that this podcast is for informational purposes only and accepts no legal liability. So let's get started. One of the goals for this podcast is to interview and feature influential leaders in the Agile space. Today's guests are just that. Mary and Tom pioneered the Lean Software Development Movement with their groundbreaking book, Lean Software Development and Agile Toolkit. It's a classic among Agile literature. In 2013, they also released The Lean Mindset, Ask the Right Questions. Mary and Tom travel the globe speaking at conferences and consulting with many of the world's top companies. It's an honor and a pleasure to have them on the All Things Agile podcast. Without further ado, let's welcome Mary and Tom. Well, thank you for joining me today, Mary and Tom. I really appreciate it. Why don't we go ahead and get started with a few questions. During my own career, I have worked at several Fortune 500 companies, and I've often found that large organizations tend to be project-focused rather than product-focused. For example, I have seen environments where software development is treated as a black box, and it can sometimes have a throw-it-over-the-fence mentality. I would love to hear your thoughts on integrating software development as part of a holistic product chain. If you look back, uh, I don't know, to the early 90s, I was a manager in the early 90s, and there, was a, there, was, there were very few of my colleagues that could even type. Typing wasn't something that you learned unless you were going to be a secretary. Um, the idea of doing email and stuff was so difficult that when the internet first came, uh, many managers had to have their secretaries do their email typing. Eventually that went away. But if you look at industries that were formed before uh, technology was widespread, like banks and insurance companies and those kinds of industries, you will find that the technology area was separated out from the mainstream for two reasons. One reason is because the, the managers of the line businesses simply were not comfortable with technology. And another was that technology was, it, computer technology was considered uh, something that was expensive and um, should be centralized in order to reduce cost. Well, today, computer technology is not the same. It is the fund, uh, fundamental basis for competition for almost every company that uses it. Banks, the kinds of products that they offer are the things that help them be competitive. Uh, if you take a look at the, the new companies like Google and, and Facebook and Amazon and those companies, computer technology is a fundamental competitive advantage. And if that's true, then it needs to be managed uh, at least what's done in the line organization rather than in some side organization that isn't tied to the line organization. So if you, if you look at the companies I just mentioned, they don't have a central 
IT department, they have, which is a cost center, they have the line organizations responsible. That doesn't mean that they don't think about um, IT costs, but they think about them as product development costs. So now the things that people develop that are helping the company become more competitive and distinguish it from other companies are things that need to happen with people who sit in the line organization and truly understand customers and are close to them. And secondly, uh, software technology today is, is much more thought of not as a black box, but as a constant feedback mechanism. So you do something, you see the results on customers, on the line business, you adapt to the results, and you continue on. With those two things said, first of all, it provides a competitive or strategic advantage to be thinking in the line organization about technology. And secondly, technology is by and large best de developed as a short loop, short feedback loop kind of a business. It makes very little sense to continue on with this black box concept that used to be, uh, you know, a sensible idea, but no longer is. Tom, do you have something to say? Yes, definitely. Um, I'd like to address this from a little more um, abstract level and put projects in their proper place. The motivating aspect as identified by Simon Simak is always a purpose, a reason for doing things, a difference that a organization is attempting to make in the world. It's the reason why people come to work why they think about a problem, why they uh, devote a lot of energy to solving the problem. Now, why is primary. Nothing great happens without a great why. How is where the project fits. It's one of the techniques for containing risk, um, for containing how much resources you go to um, devote to achieving your why. Um, Agile is another collection of techniques that um, are housed, ways of working strategies, tools. Uh, engineering disciplines are another set of how, um, automated testing and many others. Um, but they're all um, ways of working, ways of thinking to achieve a purpose. Neither of those are your product. Your product is what? And that's Simic's third level, why, how, and what. Now, whether you are successful is not so much a matter of um, did you stay within the constraints that your project um, imposes. It is did you do the very best that you could in terms of achieving your purpose within the constraints of your available tools and skills and risk management strategies. Now, I read a fascinating article in Harvard Business Review yesterday, and um, it was saying that the most important, the most powerful way of managing uh, risk is to measure and analyze time to recover from something going wrong in any individual component of what you're doing. This translates very easily, at least in my initial impression, 
into how fast is your feedback loop. If you try and do a what that doesn't really contribute to achieving the purpose and find out about it until very much after it has been done and after many things have been built on top of it, you have wasted all of the good skills, all of the good techniques, and you have frittered away your why. But if you find out about it very quickly and you have in place practices and approaches that you can recover very quickly, then you have done the very best that you can, you've delivered the best what that you can using your constraints to achieve your purpose. And I think that's a framework for thinking about um, projects as just a tool. They're not the what. They are not the why. They're just a way of constraining risk. Right, that makes sense. That makes sense. I, I, I agree. Sometimes people uh, place more emphasis, if you will, on the success of the project rather than the success of the product. And, and, the, and for the customers, I agree. Oh, excellent, excellent answers. Um, well, the next question I was wanting to ask, kind of in a similar note, um, I've also worked on projects where everything was kind of guided by arbitrary gates, if you will, and sometimes the end customers and the product features were really not in focus. Have you seen this behavior before, and if so, what advice do you have for our listeners on how to tackle this issue? Well. Um, it's it's interesting where the arbitrary dates come from because I think that um, a business organization wants done to help them move forward with customers. They have some frame in mind about how much it's worth to them to do that, how much money they can spend, what kind of deadlines are are important, and uh, those those deadlines and those budget constraints should be honored as far as what is it that we, uh, what are our constraints for meeting our overall objective. But then when those get translated into somebody's version of minor objectives and minor deadlines, and if we don't do this by this time, we can't get to there by that time, then those become completely arbitrary and uh, basically unattached to the overall purpose. And those kinds of deadlines that are fake are pretty easy to detect. And what is the reason for them? That's what you've got to ask. Why do we have these strange deadlines? Why don't we have instead a very tight feedback loop and, and a visibility of the progress we're making towards the overall objective of what it is that we're trying to do and understand what part of the progress needs to happen in different times? Now, if the way that you do a project is you first do all of the design and then you do you know, all of the, the next step, and it isn't until the end that you actually do the work, write the code, write the test, integrate the software, then those dates are truly artificial. But if your strategy is to say, I am going to have a complete system in two months, it's going to be a minimal system, but it will be workable, and we can get feedback on it. And that two months is going to give us another eight months to finish the whole thing and the feedback necessary to do that. That's a much more viable deadline. So you have to say, are the high-level constraints being appropriately applied as low-level constraints to get stuff done, 
or are they artificial? Because if they're artificial, smart people can figure that out and they will ignore them. Huh? Not all deadlines are arbitrary. Some are legal. Some are annual rhythms of shows. Um, there are some very legitimate deadlines. And a competent team with a competent manager that understands um, what it takes to do the work will be able to achieve a real deadline. However, if a deadline is used as motivation, as a goad, as a way of avoiding waste, then it can be very ineffective and very destructive. It can lead to bad behavior. The use of a deadline that is not legitimate, that does not have a, is not related to the why of the work being done, is probably a symptom of lack of competence to measure what really matters about the progress of the work. And I want to throw in one last little thing here, and that is that, um, and, and what it is is that projects usually have things called cost and schedule and scope. And the thing that, that really should be flexible is neither in most business cases, cost nor schedule. The thing that should be flexible is scope because cost and schedule deadlines are typically driven by business constraints. But the scope should be the thing that is negotiable almost always. And the reason for that is because, especially in a software environment, the thing that we're putting together is a complex system. The more junk features, capabilities or whatever that we throw into that mass of software, the more complex it is, the more difficult it is. Um, by and large, over time, the more stuff you have in software, the more crud you get in there, the more complexity you get in there, the harder it is to change, to manage, and so on. So in software, you want to think of stuff as bad. Um, you don't want to measure a team on how much junk can I put in in a window of time. You want to say, how much business purpose can I achieve with as little code as possible? So you are looking for reduced feature sets, reduced um, uh, capabilities that get the job done. And so the thing you really want to reduce is not the, the, bed, the budget or the schedule. It's the amount of stuff that you try to squeeze into a business-driven bu budget and schedule. So typically in all projects, and this is not the way most project managers look at it, but a software project should almost always um, bend on scope rather than bend on deadline or on uh, cost. Is impact. Did you achieve the impact that your work aimed to achieve? Did it achieve its purpose? If the impact can't be measured, you have no guidance about what to include and what to leave out. You have no measure about what, when you're done. If you have it, as much impact as your tools and skills and techniques um, permit, as the team was capable of, the project was a success, 
Right. I, I definitely like that impact statement. That really kind of really sums it up very well. Thank you. Well, uh, if you don't mind, I'll ask uh, the next question, which is, in my experiment, experience, uh, I've seen senior executives get you know, get very excited about adopting Agile, and they decide to roll it out across the organization. However, uh, sometimes the teams can be lacking in technical skills or tools to ensure success. Uh, for example, uh, you know, great Agile teams place a, a high value on quality, um, and that usually will translate to, you know, uh, frequent and rigorous testing. And if the team has, for example, automated tests in place, uh, then, you know, they'll probably be in good shape. However, there, there may be teams which have never worked, for example, with test automation, and it can then be a real challenge. What are your thoughts regarding skills and technical preparation in relation to, to methodology adoption? So, um Methodology is the, the, the result. It's not the driving factor in a good Agile implementation. What you're trying to do is create an environment with rapid feedback so that you can do a better job of satisfying customers. And you should not be measuring, do I do this or that Agile practice? You should be measuring, do I have greater impact in delivering what my customers really want? And that's where you get to the quality, the um, uh, test automation, and that sort of thing. So let's talk about a different objective for that, obje for that executive so that the executive has something that they can measure and put hands around. And that is, instead of worrying about a methodology called Agile, why not worry about what I'm going to call the software development process of the future, which is continuous delivery. So instead of saying, did we have these meetings and did we have these teams, you should say, how fast from the time I decide to do something until the time I get it in production, how long does that take? And mm -hmm. when you start looking at how far along am I on the path to continuous delivery, that is my executive goal. Those companies that do that have far more um, effective agile implementations because it's that one thing that you're focusing on the continuous delivery that drives all of the good technical behavior, by the way, the good process behavior. So let me give you an example. In um, Alcoa, once upon a time when he became CEO, decided that he wanted to focus on one single thing, and it was going to be safety. And every single issue around any type of safety incident was what the entire company focused on. And that became a lever to cause all kinds of additional good behavior. And the company really took off because you can't have safety without quality uh, alert workers, uh, really good, well-run equipment, all of that sort of thing. And similarly in Lean, um, the concept of flow is sort of that driving principle. If you try to just focus on flow, Everything else falls in place, all the technical things, all the quality things, and so on. Similarly in software, let's not focus on process. Let's focus on continuous delivery. How far are we towards being able to deploy immediately? And if we make that the one principle of how we proceed, then um, what we have is a driving principle that will drive all the rest of the good behavior and certainly all of the technical behavior. Well, excellent answer. Well, I tell you what, uh, final question, if you will. Um, 
there are many uh, great sources of information on implementing Agile, but most are geared towards smaller organizations often. And for larger companies, it can be a hurdle, if you will, to um, you know implement new methodologies in a global workforce. For example, uh, I've routinely uh, worked with teams that are split across India, Brazil, China, Mexico, Mexico, and of course here in the U.S. Uh, what insight can you provide on how to uh, tackle teams that are globally distributed? Um. The, uh, there certainly are many big companies. Uh, we wrote in our new book about Ericsson as an example. Uh, very large companies that are very effective in implementing lean and agile concepts. But they don't hold a lot of stake in having, quote, teams that are geographically distributed. Yes, organizations are geographically distributed, but why do teams need to be? So what I see large, effective organizations do when they think about distribution is to say, what are the things that need to be communicated, and how can we effectively, at a single site, have communication among colleagues and then think about communication across teams on a different scale? So the effective ones don't try too hard to make individuals have to communicate across large distances, and if they do, they have people travel. Um, however, there can definitely be reasons why people should, um, and really valid, purpose-driven, business-driven reasons why people need to communicate across geographic boundaries. And there certainly are plenty of examples of how this is done effectively. If you look at the open source movement, um, none of the open source projects have people co-located. Active ones work very well with the communication issues across countries, and you can look at them for models of how to do it. Um, so if teams do need to be distributed, then you want to think why, okay? You do not want to have a sort of class A people figure out what to do and class B people are in another continent that actually implement it because that gets us back to the first question. Um, the people who are doing the implementation are divorced from the purpose. But if the teams um, are geographically distributed, you have to think hard about how can they all share a common purpose that they understand and believe in and commit to, and if they do that, the communication issues will be solved. And if you can't imagine teams across uh, uh, dedicated to a common purpose, teams across country, you know, distance dedicated to a common purpose, then you should say, hmm, why are our teams structured this way? Um, so every company that has solved this problem has solved it in a different way depending upon their market and their, um, their uh, uh, structure and all of that sort of thing. But they do have a few things in common. One is they think for themselves. They don't take rule books. They try to make sure they honor the, um, the uh, intelligence of every person on a team and make sure that they can participate fully, their thoughts in thinking about it, and they don't, um, they don't have these wall handover mechanisms because that's not the right way to deal with distance. Okay. All the great teams we have seen around the world, and we've seen many, have one shared characteristic, and it's not tools or techniques or methodologies. It's they think for themselves. The, um, our new book has many examples, case studies of 
groups that have thought about their problem in their context and their challenges, and they think for themselves and come up with unique combination of tools and techniques and disciplines that make them highly effective in achieving their purpose. A team which is distributed and is simply doing what it's told to do is not going to be very effective. A team which is distributed for a good reason, who all believe in a purpose that they are trying to achieve and have adequate tools, bandwidth, um, and the like that make it possible to communicate effectively, will figure out how to do it. They will think for themselves if they have sufficient feedback about how they are doing, how things are working for them, they will figure out how to do it. And there are many, many ways that different teams figure out how to do this. But it's not a recipe. It's not a product that you buy. It is how people think about what they're doing together. If they can't think together, they can't be very effective at working together. If they can't learn together, the product will reflect that lack of learning. Oh, I, I definitely agree. Uh, I definitely agree with you that um, having those teams be able to, you know, really um, understand it and, that, you know, what they're trying to achieve and, and have those goals and have that, uh, that you know, thought and control is, is very key because as, as kind of as you mentioned, if you kind of have these kind of class A, class B type situations, then um, you can often result in micromanaging and diminish morale and sometimes poor quality I've seen in the past of, of the resulting code. Uh, so great points, great points. And a lot of those you're actually uh, referencing uh, some of your more recent work, if you don't mind, I'd, I'd love to mention that briefly. Uh, you guys have put together a great book uh, last year, The Lean Mindset. Uh, would you like to maybe highlight that a little bit more? Sure. Um, I was just uh, reading in an article that the it used to be shareholder value was a thing that businesses thought they were in business for. But today, in today's economy, in today's uh, high-tech environment, what you really want to do in order to have a successful business is you need to have great people that use their minds towards accomplishing the business purpose. And that purpose has to be something that these people believe in. And you need to have an intense focus on delighting customers. And those three things, customers that you are trying to delight, employees that are deeply engaged and uh, trying to make something happen for those customers, and an overriding purpose are the three sort of company drivers of the future. So our book has five chapters. One is on purpose, and then the next one is on engaged workers, in energized workers. The third one is about delighted customers. And then the, we talk about efficiency and what efficiency means in this context. And uh, efficiency means, in the lean context, flow efficiency rather than resource efficiency, which is a whole other topic that we can talk about sometime. And lastly, we talk about innovation because today's economy moves too, today's technology moves too fast to be comfortable that what worked three years ago is going to work three years from now. So constant innovation 
is uh, another thing that companies need to have. So that's sort of in the nutshell what the book is about, those five chapters. And to sum it all up, we have lots of case studies in there, as Tom said. Each case study shows how thinking for yourself in your context is important, which means it's important to have people who care to think for themselves and who are allowed to think for themselves and who are, are inspired to help make the company successful. Excellent, excellent. And I would definitely encourage our, our listeners to, to pick up a copy of your latest book. Once again, it's Lean Mindset, and it's available at uh, Booksellers Everywhere. Uh, I picked up my copy uh, at Amazon. Um, and I really just want to uh, thank you, uh, both Mary and Tom, for joining me today for this uh, podcast episode. It's been tremendous help to myself and I'm sure to all of our listeners. And uh, really thank you so much for your time, Mary and Tom. You've been great. Thank you for listening to All Things Agile. We look forward to you subscribing to the podcast in iTunes and leaving a kind review. Thanks and God bless.